Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in to DOS Protest Too Much. This is a reminder, um, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or any other streaming service where you can rate and review the show, please do so. Um, this is Luther Month, the beginning of October. And so this month, uh, it's not Lutheran Month, it's Luther Month. And what I mean by that is we're going to devote our episodes of the podcast to different aspects of Luther's, of the life and thought of Martin Luther. Um, they aren't episodes on Lutheranism or the Lutheran Church, though by virtue of having discussions on Martin Luther, we will no doubt cover those things also as they relate to Martin Luther, obviously. Luther being the father of the Protestant Reformation and being the person who many Christians look to, uh, who slightly later became known as Lutherans. Um, and I only say this because if we relegated any discussion of Lutheranism to the month of October or wanted to bring on a guest to discuss some aspect of the Lutheran church or its history or a past theologian uh, who was Lutheran, um, we would have to only have them on in October. And so, which would be, we'd be missing out on a lot of uh, Protestant history, broadly speaking, uh, during the 11 month, the other 11 months. So, so October is Luther month. So in October, our episodes will specifically be on Luther, his life, thought, development, and so on. We aim to have Luther scholars, whether Lutheran or not, who specialize in this on the show, or because there is often an overlap uh, between Lutheran theology and Luther, Luther scholarship, we will also have Lutheran theologians who can speak to this uh, because they have an expertise in the areas of, of Luther's life or thought. And so today we have on the show someone of this latter group, Dr. Jack Kilcrease. Dr. Kilcrease is a Lutheran theologian. He's been on the show before. Um, he was on our very first episode ever, actually, of Doth Protest Too Much, uh, where he came on and discussed uh, developments in Protestantism during the 17th century, uh, what is known as Protestant scholasticism, Protestant orthodoxy, as it's also called. And if you are interested in checking that out, I encourage you to check out that episode. It was called Those Dry Scholastics. Um, Dr. Kilquist is joining us today to discuss the dispute between Luther and Zwingli on the doctrine of the Holy Eucharist, where these differences in their understanding of Eucharistic theology stem from. Dr. Kilquist has written in this area. Uh, Dr. Kilquist is a Lutheran lay theologian and currently a member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's Commission on Theology and Church Relations. He earned his PhD in Systematic Theology and Ethics from Marquette University in 2009. He's the author of several books and many articles. Uh, he's an associate professor of historical and systematic theology at the Institute of Lutheran Theology, independent seminary and graduate school where yours truly studies at. If you are interested in reading further from Dr. Kilcrease, I encourage you to check out his website, jackkilcrease.com. That's J-A-C-2-K-I-L-C-R-E-A-S-E.com. You can find links to past articles, radio shows, and other podcasts he's appeared on as well uh, through that website, as well as his blog. So Jack, it says on your website that you are passionate about barbecue and fancy yourself as something of a grill master. Smoked meats, whiskey, and theological discussion, you say, add to a great day for you. So why aren't you living in Texas? <laughs> there's lots of Lutherans in Texas. I was actually born in Texas, so there's that. So. Okay. That must be where it comes from. So uh, before we get into the theology, I was going to ask, uh, we do this time to time, especially with returning guests, give kind of a personal touch to the show. Uh, usually a favorite this or something you've done recently, uh, stuff like that. We're going to ask Dr. Kilcrease today what his what two shows that he's watched in the past, whether on TV or streaming, 
of the past year that he's particularly enjoyed. So go ahead, uh, take it away. Uh, well, I, um, we, my wife and I just recently finished up uh, Midnight Mass, which uh, is a horror, uh, I guess you call it, miniseries on Netflix, um, which engages in a lot of very uh, deep kind of theological discussions. I don't think that people come to a definitive kind of um, uh, decisions about matters theological, but I, but the the, uh, the priest on the show has a very interesting character arch is literally fleshed out as a human being and, and, and has like a, an actual uh, theology, um, which is uh, again, very interesting, um, especially in light of the fact that the uh, director and writer of it was, is um, grew up a Catholic and now is uh, essentially become an atheist. Uh, but he, he doesn't make religious people into caricatures, which I thought was, was a very interesting um, uh, thing. Um, the, the other show that I really liked um, over the last year is uh, Ozark, um, I, I, which again is a little bit of a different genre. Um, but uh, the I, I enjoy the main character because uh, he's he's willing to kind of pragmatically work through situations and kind of do what he has to do to survive. And I always kind of admire um, people who are pragmatic and uh, goal oriented and, and so forth. But anyways. <laughs> I watched Ozark and I would not have survived it. I've been, but what's the, what's that actor's name? Um, he's in a lot of comedies. And... Oh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jason Bateman. Yeah. yeah I, I would not be able to, uh, I yeah, wouldn't have made it as far as he did. He, he does have Hogan to think. Family back in the day. And then he was on the rest of development. And, uh, yeah. And yeah. I remember him from horrible bosses, which is a silly comedy, but yeah, he, um, I, I would not have made it if I were him. Uh, it, it was good joke. Dark, but good. I, I actually, I shared a lot of your thoughts about Midnight Mass. I, I have not finished it. I've watched a few episodes. Uh, okay. my, wa- my wife, Rachel, and I watched. And um, I, at first, I was really drawn into, like you said, the, the the theology is actually pretty solid for, I mean, for film and TV, it's, they so often, right. like you said, make caricatures. They, they make religious they make clergy or religious representatives look very one-dimensional actually i mean i like his sermons the sermons actually really good yeah, the sermons were good too yeah <laughs> uh, but the one-on-ones he has pastorally with people um are very are very well done um the yeah, whole yeah. kind of fantasy horror bit um i didn't expect that turn it kind of turned into like a stranger things-esque thing for me i'm right, still, yeah. i'm still yeah. like wrestling with that but i liked like had that religious aspect, which is very well done, been like the main plot, just like the life of a rural Catholic priest. I mean, mm-hmm. this shows that it can be done well. Yes, um, exactly. You know, so, well, good. Um, so today you're on to talk about uh, Luther. Um, and now before I start the conversation, so we're, we're particularly, um, the Eucharist is what we're going to be focusing on and Luther's views on that, as well as Zwingli's views. But the word consubstantiation often pops up uh, uh, in referring to what Lutherans supposedly believe about the Eucharist. I've noticed this in a lot of, I'm in some online groups, some are like religious based, some, but they aren't like specifically Lutheran. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen so like debate back and forth in there where someone, uh, they may refer to like differences across Christian groups of what they believe about the Eucharist and someone will refer to Lutherans as believing in consubstantiation. Oftentimes it's right. either from a Roman Catholic, but a lot of times it's also from a reformed person I've noticed. And mm-hmm. um, again, I don't know if Lutherans themselves even know any better, I guess, because I mean, a lot of people in the pews of their respective denominations don't always know what they're act- is actually believed by the tradition. Now, 
from what I've understood, um, for what I've learned is through my studies at ILT, talking with you, I think, but also some Luther, other Lutheran scholars, and is that consubstantiation is not quite what Lutherans believe as far as the Eucharist goes. Um, yeah. Um, well, uh, it's yeah, it's a, it's a term commonly kind of applied to Lutherans in, I've noticed, uh, Reformed and uh, Roman Catholic uh, dictionaries and encyclopedias of religion. Um, the consubstantiation was a position that people in the late Middle Ages took, uh, particularly um, the alchemist theology. Um, and uh, in this view, uh, the body and blood of Christ are present, but they're in some sense ontologically fused with the bread and the wine. So that, uh, the, in a sense, the bread and the wine kind of, like, to want of a better description, kind of drag them along with them, so to speak. Uh, now, it, it's it's similar to the Lutheran view, but the Lutheran view um, uh, doesn't quite speculate about the metaphysical mechanics of this quite to the extent that the people who are whose position that was. The Lutheran view is that the body and blood of Christ are present in the Lord's Supper, in, in the bread and the wine. The bread and the wine don't go away, as in transubstantiation, um, because of 1 Corinthians 10, 16 is not the bread we eat, the communion of the of the body of Christ, is not the cup of blessing that we bless, the communion of the blood of Christ. So, so Luther says, well, look, it's still there, right? So, but uh, there's a sacramental union, certainly, but uh, the later Lutherans came up with the formula in, under, and through, in, under, and through. How we account for it being in, under, and through, um, we wouldn't necessarily uh, posit that, but it, just in the same way as uh, when you, when you uh, eat the bread in every grain, invisibly is present the body of Christ in every molecule of wine invisibly is present the blood of Christ, right? So, um, uh, and how you want to metaphysically account for that, it will just leave that open to mystery, essentially, so. Okay, so there's not a lot of uh, emphasis on metaphysical explanation in the workings of it. Right, so. it's right. Trying so, to avoid overly um, broad metaphysical explanations, yes. Right, and which is what you get in some traditions. Um, so what would... So if not consubstantiation, if we had to give it a term, what, what is the one a lot of Lutheran theologians would prefer? For oh, gosh. Life? I mean, we'll say that we believe in the substantial presence or the real presence. Real presence, of course, is something that, that QC came up with. So Lutherans have adopted that term, but it's, in, it, but it's an intentionally ambiguous term. I think substantial presence, um, substantial presence of Christ in the elements, I guess is how we would put it, maybe. And I've heard that, that the Anglican, uh, the Oxford Anglican theologian, Pusey, actually uh, was influenced by by Luther. I know the Oxford oh, yes. went in their different directions. They were mostly looked to Rome for things, but in some, like, uh, uh, what's his name, the hymn writer, I will put in the show notes, I can't think of it, looked to the East. Uh, but yeah, uh, Pusey looked to look to Lutherans, at least in regards to the Eucharist. Um, right, well, he was influenced by, uh, and had correspondence with, with uh, Gottfried Stuluk, at the University of Halle early in his career. Eventually, though, he um, uh, stopped corresponding with him and uh, chose uh, Heinrich Dollinger, uh, who was, of course, the, one of the fathers of the old Catholic church. Mm, yeah. Wrote a, what a famous um, book examining the origins of the papacy but, um, and decided on a Catholic, the kind of Catholicism without the Pope. So you can see the point of contact there would be. Yeah. Anyways. <clears throat> um, so um, this, uh, do you think that there, so, 
is there precedence for the Lutheran understanding of the Eucharist? Um, I've sometimes heard like sacramental realism is the, uh, uh, would be a term, for instance. Do you think that there's mm-hmm. a precedent set in the early church and earlier earlier than the Reformation for what the Lutherans believe about Holy Communion, about the Eucharist? Yeah, I mean, um, certainly, uh, first of all, I mean, prior to about the ninth century, I think you can art, you can say that there's almost an almost absolute consensus. And believe me, that's impressive in light of um, how, you know, the church fathers and all kinds of other people in the church have disagreements about amongst themselves, but sacramental realism is the name of the game. I mean, there's not a lot of basis for some sacramental symbolicism that you'll find. Um, in terms of how they explain it, certainly Ignatius of Antioch, who's writing about 110 AD, um, who emphasizes the real presence, talking about it as the how the uh, Donatus. I'm sorry, the Docetus, these people who reject the idea that Christ was a was true man, don't want to participate in the um, Eucharist as consecrated by the bishop because he, they know that it's the true body born of Mary, you know, crucified on the cross for us and raised the medicine of immortality, as he puts it, uh, and so forth. Um, now, um, he and then also Irenaeus talk about the bread and the wine also simultaneously being present. Um, Irenaeus talks explicitly about there being an earthly element and a heavenly element. This, of course, is cited quite a bit in the Lutheran confessional writings. The earthly element being the bread and uh, wine, and then the heavenly element being the the flesh and blood of Christ, which are physical but mysteriously physical. So, um, right. And again, there's there's also language, certainly there's language in the early church. Catholics can certainly glom onto a lot of uh, statements of the early church, which seem to, in many cases, presuppose something like transubstantiation. Um, but um, uh, it depends on who you're talking to. The language is not always um, very precise because terminological distinctions, uh, which get worked out later on, are not present in these early authors. Uh, but they all very clearly think that the body and blood of Christ are literally present They're physically albeit in a mysteriously physical sense. Uh, I think that's the best way of putting it. And I, and I, it's interesting because like what you said, a lot of Roman Catholics will point to the, to that. They will make the same, they will point to the, that same example of, mm-hmm. of a consensus, broadly speaking of real presence in the same way that you just did. Um, so, it, so it shows that, um, Lutherans and Catholics at least share with each other uh, that that they don't believe that the Eucharist is merely a symbol. Right. Uh, Carl, now you might be able to pronounce his name better. Is the uh, I think he was Scandinavian. Carl Wisloff, Weisloff, uh, Weisloff, I think. Weisloff, yeah. He he wrote. Um, I read a book from him a couple of years ago about uh, called the Gift of Communion, and it was uh, really it mentioned how Luther's first debate over the Eucharist was not with other Protestants, but it was with the church of Rome, but the, mm-hmm. the debate was not so much over the question of presence or how, or how, or if Christ is present, in the right. Eucharist, but it was over how, or if the Eucharist is a sacrifice or not, but by mid career Luther, Luther's chief opponents over the doctrine of the Eucharist are no longer the Roman Catholic church, but mm-hmm. his chief opponents were other Protestants and, Right. What went behind, what was behind this shift? 
Um, okay, well, there's a diff- different stages. So, I mean, first of all, you have re- Luther, after Luther comes to a kind of mature understanding of justification, probably sometime in 1519 or 1520, he, it makes him start to completely rethink everything. Because again, if you think that justification is an imp- is price-imputed righteousness, it's things like sacraments is essentially a kind of medicine that makes you better so you can do meritorious works is not going to be is not going to work anymore it will become incoherent with your doctrine of justification the church as an institution that gives you rules uh to merit salvation is not going to work for you anymore okay so he starts to have to rethink everything and so uh in his treatise so he writes three reformation treatises one where he explains justification freedom of christian then he explains the sacraments, Babylonian captivity of the church, and then he explains, as in light of the first two, what's the church now, okay? And what he's worried about in the Babylonian captivity of the church is, first of all, um, we might say from the, the he, he operates really from two perspectives, one, a canonical principle, and then an evangelical principle when he looks at theological questions and studies scripture. So the canonical principle is, can you find a basis for this in the Bible? Evangelical principle is the Bible is all supposed to be understood in light of the unconditional grace of, in, found in Jesus. Is the are we interpreting the Bible in a way that's coherent with that? And so, one, he attacks the Roman Catholic idea that you can have communion in one kind, and uh, things like this. Uh, th- this was the practice of the Catholic Church from the um, the Gregorian. Uh, revolution in the 11th century until Vatican II, okay? And the idea was um, that the laity would potentially spill the wine, which is the true blood of Christ. And so, but it didn't matter anyways, because a little bit of the, the body is in the blood, and a little bit of the, body is in the or blood is in the body. So they could just receive one in, in one kind. And uh, that would be okie-dokie, Right. Uh, Luther says that doesn't work because Christ instituted it in both kinds. So everybody's got to have it in both kinds. So he's concerned with things like that. He's also concerned with, from the the perspective of the evangelical principle, okay, um, people have masses said for the dead. Why? Because of the medieval system of merit and demerit, right? The idea of purgatory. All these ideas really don't make sense anymore if you think that faith receives Christ's perfect righteousness. So the sacrament can't be about a sac- it can't be a sacrifice, okay, for the living and the dead, however you want to understand that, whether it be um, in the Protestant caricature of a repetition, which is not really what the medieval church taught or Roman Catholicism, or a representation where uh, Christ's sacrifice is made present to believers so they can be drawn in and participate in offering themselves up along with Christ, which is kind of the... Uh, actual Catholic position, um, more, even more refined after Vatican II. Um, so it, that doesn't work anymore. So not least, again, you can also invoke the canonical principle. How many times does the New Testament call Eucharist a sacrifice? Well, that would be zero times. Um, so what does it call it? And he says, well, it's, it's called a diathecte, which means a covenant or more precisely in Greek, a testament. So a will that the dying Jesus gives to his people, that Jesus dies and then wills them, them his body and blood for the forgiveness of their sins. He's stripped of everything. He has nothing left to give them except for his very body. And, that, and that's what he gives them uh, for the forgiveness of their sins. So that's, he says, that's what the, what's what the New Testament calls uh, the, the um, 
the Eucharist. And what the Eucharist is in a visible form is what the preaching of the gospel from the pulpit is in an auditory form, right? So sacraments give us in a visible form what the preaching office gives us in an auditory form. Words are sacraments. Sacraments are sorts of words, right? And they're evangelical words. So, um, so that front is is fought out, and Rome is sort of done with in his thinking. But while Luther is gone, hiding out after the the Diet of Worms, when he says, you know, here I stand, and all that kind of thing, he's he, his his elector takes him to a hunting castle to hide him out because the emperor's now put him under imperial ban. Um, Karlstadt, who was one of his colleagues and one of his compatriots fighting against Ech at the Leipzig debate, starts interested in radical reformation, specifically because a group of people called the Zwickau prophets show up and they are iconoclasts. They want to rip down all the statues and, and break all the stained glass windows and not wear vestments in church services and have very minimal liturgy. And uh, Karlstadt uh, says, well, it's just a symbol. When Jesus said, this is my body, he was just pointing at his body, which was going to get sacrificed for him on the cross. Okay, so uh, it's it's just a symbol. Um, now, what's his motivation behind this? Well, part of his motivation behind this seems to be um, Augustinianism. He's the one who introduces, in part, um, um, Luther to some of, other, of, of Augustine's uh, anti-Pelagian writings. He's very interested in is anti-Pelagian theology. And the interesting thing that is, is that if you have a very hard view of predestination, though it's not 100%, most theologians who go in that direction that Augustine starts at, that particular trajectory, tend to go for some sacramental symbolicism. Because if God in eternity has already made his decision about you, what's the use of, you know, um, this, you know, physical vehicle of grace. Grace is something that is going to, it has already been decided about you in eternity. Not everybody who comes in contact with the sacraments are saved. Okay. Uh, so the, can they be real vehicles of grace? Well, obviously God's invisible predestinating will be called grace. So gradually you'll start viewing the sacraments then as possibly uh, symbols of some kind, or maybe um, you'll view them spiritualistically as in the Calvinistic tradition or something along those lines. Uh, the other issue seems to be that there's a profound, um, in the late Middle Ages, uh, culturally, but Karlstadt and a lot of the early reformers pick up on this, there's a profound anti-clericalism that grips a lot of Western Europe. And uh, one of the greatest weapons of clerical power in the late Middle Ages is viewed as the ability to transubstantiate the elements in the Eucharist, right? You act as the priest acts in persona Christi. And if popes and other and don't like what a, a, a ruler is doing, uh, then they'll say, well, great, you don't get any sacrament. Okay, so a way of getting rid of clerical power then also becomes rejecting the idea of the real presence. Because if you think the priest can do that, he has a weapon against you, <laughs> essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's got a real a special status. Down a notch is to say that there is no real presence and that he's not really doing much of anything other than just you know preaching to you and maybe giving you a few um, object lessons in the form of, of sacraments or something like that. So Luther comes back from the Warburg and he is hopping mad, both against about the spiritualists and also uh, what Karlstadt is against them. Um, 
So, like so you crazy. cut out you cut out for a second. Can you repeat? Uh, how did Luther react again? He, he was hopping mad. He was very very angry. Uh, people advised him not to come out of hiding, but he did anyways, just because he was so opposed to what these people were doing. And he preached a whole series of sermons condemning Karlstadt, uh, but also condemning the idea that the Holy Spirit could come apart from the word or the sacraments. Um, what he will call enthusiasm or shvamarai um, means to swarm. So he treated the spiritual prophets like they were swarming. And he was absolutely, in, because of the civil disorder and because of this weird idea of the Holy Spirit coming upon people, allowing them to prophesy, apart from reading the Bible or preaching the contents of the Bible, he utterly rejects the idea that you can um, uh, have anything like some, uh, sacramental symbolicism at all. And so when he then, um, when Zwingli and the other Southern reformers come on the scene, he, uh, if you've read uh, Amy Nelson Burnett's study of this, basically the subtext in all his attacks is that he, he sees them as just the new version of Karlstadt and the same kind of disorder, the same kind of spiritualism where you think that God is speaking to you, uh, apart from the concrete means of the words and sacrament, are all... Um, seen as being present with Zwingli, even though in Zwingli, I mean, arguably a lot of the, I mean, a lot of that kind of enthusiasm um, is not really what he's up to and is not entirely fair as being imputed to him. But this is how Luther sees him. And then, and this is why he is really, really, again, vicious and absolutely, um, you know, going, you know, going to the wall, so to speak, uh, attacking people like Zwingli. Um, just in an utterly like vicious manner. So, so speaking of uh, well, the, the shawarma or enthusiasts, uh, I've I read a good quote. Um, I don't know. I, I wasn't able to verify. I have Luther's works uh, digitally, but I didn't. Uh, I meant to do that before the show, but I did mm-hmm. not. Uh, he's he supposedly said, uh, "I would rather drink blood with the Pope than wine with the enthusiasts." Uh, right. Is that something he actually said? Yes. Okay, so, um, and that kind of uh, encapsulates so far what we've, uh, uh, you but, know. And, and in the uh, Babylonian captivity of the church, when he rejects transubstantiation, he says, well, but as long as you get the, the body and blood of Christ there, that's all that really matters. Um, so it just, it just says, you know, bear in mind, it's a philosophical theory. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, don't um, make this a dogma, which, you're requiring people to believe in. So if if the Catholic Church had not gone in the direction of dogmatizing that explanation, mm. Luther would have no qualms with Rome right. as far as the presence is involved. Maybe the sacrifice. The presence is involved, as long as they're getting it there, right? Sure. So. Okay. Um, so on to Zwingli. Um, he's kind of the uh, there's there's many enthusiasts. You mentioned Zwickau, you mentioned uh Karlstadt, but really Zwingli is um the main one uh i think uh luther's uh uh dispute with other forms of protestantism is really exemplified perfectly in the example of luther versus zwingli so can you tell us some things about Ulrich zwingli who was he um what's his what's his story uh zwingli was a, a swiss uh humanist um he was born in Mountain Village, and eventually, though, went to the University of Vienna and then the University of uh, Basel, studied with a guy named Paul Wittenbach, um, and um, I'm sorry, Thomas Wittenbach, and um, 
Wittenbach uh, taught him kind of a mixture of Thomism and Scotism. Now, the importance of that um, is that Thomism tries to sort of coordinate faith and reason. It sees there being a rational order and a revelational order. And these two things like aren't in conflict, they can be synthesized because God is obviously the author of both orders. And that I think that in part tells us a lot about the direction kind of his uh, theological method ends up going. Uh, but he was uh, got very interested in humanism early on and then became the um, village priest of a, of, a, of a couple of parishes outside of Zurich in Switzerland and really went to town uh, reading books. He owned about 350 books and um, borrowed many other books. He was very, very, he was considered very learned. And one of the books that he came upon was this book called The Enchiridion for the Christian Soldier by Erasmus. And this caused a kind of conversion experience within him almost because he felt um, he had been living a very sinful life. Uh, he had been had a lot of dalliances with the young women in his parish. And uh, he, he wanted to embody this ideal of a Christian humanist that Erasmus talks about in the book, not only being soberly moral, but also studying the original biblical languages and going back to the original sources of the great humanistic, you know, ad fontos, the great humanistic slogan and studying the Bible and the original languages and the church fathers. And he sort of then put it himself to use doing this. Later on, he attained the position of what's called the people's priest, which was a kind of town preacher in Zurich, uh, Switzerland. And that's kind of when his reforming activity uh, started. Um, specifically, he was interested in engaging in um, what the later reformed tradition will call expository preaching. Um, where you essentially preach through different books of the Bible, expounding uh, them kind of as they go. In fact, uh, to facilitate this, he also set up a um, kind of a, an adult Bible class called Prophecy, uh, where he taught people the original languages, and then they would all come together and study the Bible in their original languages as well. Um, and um, this was um, like, you know, candy for people in Zurich, because in literally in these Southern um, German and Swiss towns, you have a rising middle class that's literate, that's interested not in the earlier kind of religion that you have with in the Middle Ages with the peasants, where it's sort of ritual religion, um, but interested in hearing learned preaching. Um, and so they, they just take to this like, you know, this is just like the greatest thing in the world for them. And so, uh, Anyways, uh, to make a long story short, his reforming activity um, culminates in a couple of different disputations he has before the uh, town um, uh, government, uh, which are prompted by him rejecting the idea uh, held by pre-Vatican II Catholics that you can't eat meat during Lent, right? So that the people who were, who were in his parish. Is this a sausage eating story? Yes, this is this a is Awesome. Right. Please go on. <laughs> right. So they say, well, we, we can't just eat bread and then cut down trees all day. We need something to something, you know, to keep us going. So we have to eat meat. And so he visits their house one night and then they eat sausage before him. And then this is a great scandal. It gets in trouble with the local archbishop. And then he writes a treatise on Christian freedom saying, well, you only have got to do stuff that's in the Bible. It never says that you can't eat meat during lunch during the Bible. So the Catholic Church can't bind you on this. Prompts a series of disputations. 
and the town council basically decides in favor of him and he gets a free hand in let us say imposing his reformation on uh, Zurich which is ends up being in many ways a very different kind of reformation than Luther's it's very humanistic now Luther could, himself was a humanist in, in a sense but but Luther's big question was how can I find a gracious God and how can my love be pure and the answer to that is that God um, in his grace is present in word and sacrament, so you can rely on God. Zwingli's question is, how do we reform society in light of what the Bible says? And how do we avoid uh, sullying the, the glory of the eternal God with uh, things that are human, right? So, so Zwingli's interested in whitewashing the churches. Luther loves church artwork and thinks as long as people aren't venerating images or anything like that, it's not idolatry. Um, he gets rid of church music and in favor of just long expository sermons that go on for a couple of hours. Uh, Luther loves music, writes hymns and things like this. Um, and then the final thing is he tends to be very anti-sacramental. There's a letter that's circulated by a Dutch humanist named Honius and honey, he sends it to all the faculties of Europe, the major faculties, they get into Wittenberg too. And he says, um, you know, Jesus says, I'm the door, you know, I'm the vine. And then he says, this is my body, this is my blood. Well, we all think he was speaking metaphorically in the other times. Why do you think he was speaking um, literally when he said, this is my body, this is my blood? He said, if, if that were true, we believe in a baked God. We believe uh, we'd be no better than pagans who worship trees and rocks and things like this. So um, what Jesus really meant is this signifies my body. And so by eating the bread and the wine, we're just signifying that this, his body and blood were at one time on Calvary sacrificed for us. Okay. So as Wingley comes out of the closet and says, well, I believe this all along. I was a little timid. Uh, so I didn't uh, come out and say that I believe this, but now I do. So it's, it's all just a symbol. It's a way of publicly affirming that you believe that Jesus died for your sins, right? So it's um, uh, baptism, he says, is a symbol. Also, it's a symbol of uh, the Christian's entry into the Christian community. So by the way, which incidentally uh, sparks a debate about baptism with some of his more radical followers who then become uh, people who partially start the Anabaptist movement, but that's right. um, a little bit different. But in so any case. In, in uh, related to this discussion on uh, metaphor and how the words of institution, for instance, and really just sac sacraments now in general mean mean two different things, but uh, means something totally different to Luther than it does to Zwingli. Uh, for Zwingli and Luther, uh, I remember you you saying before in coursework that they had different understandings of what the right hand of God means, that by Jesus being at the right hand of God, and that's where he is presently, you um, mm -hmm that that means something different for Luther and Zwingli. And there's an irony to this in regard to what you just said a moment ago. What um, Can you explain that, what their differences on? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, okay, so um, one of, I mean, Zwingli starts publishing a bunch of treatises about his ideas on this. And he uses a number of arguments, um, which we could go through. But one of the chief ones is a Christological argument. And much of his understanding of the Eucharist rests on a very extreme version of kind of the standard Western Christology that you get after, um, well, really going back all the way to Tertullian in some ways. Um, but 
Western, the Western Christology tends to emphasize the duality of the person of Christ. So that the so if you read the Tome of Leo, for example, the great early Pope who tries to sort of settle the argument between um, uh, Nestorius and Cyril, he emphasizes how Christ's humanity does one thing and his divinity does another thing. Um, so Zwingli has a very extreme version of this and really says that the two natures don't, um, well, they're, they're united, but one doesn't really affect the other. The, the, what's called the communicatio idiomatum is a very weak sense of the communicatio idiomatum, which means Christians teach that, historically teach, though we disagree um, um, how exactly this all works out, uh, that because the two natures in Christ are united with each other, there's a kind of communication back and forth. Zwingli thinks that this communication is not really real, but it's mainly verbal. So you can go through the New Testament really and divide up what Jesus is doing as God and what Jesus is doing as man. So he was doing miracles, Zwingli says, um, as God, and he's dying as man, right? So this is what he calls the aloesis. Um, and um, this then also pertains to how he understands the right hand of God. Zwingli says a human body is finite. A human body cannot be present at many altars at once. So what is this nonsense about him being at my altar on Sunday morning and him being over at the Pope's altar? And um, I mean, he has a finite body. If he, we had really physically eaten him, he would be gobbled up after being eaten for 1600s or 1500s some years, right? Um, in fact, Zingley says, what the New Testament says is that he is at the right hand of God. And the right hand of God is a physical location. It's a physical location. Uh, in heaven, which is part, which is outside the solar system. Uh, again, this is the standard sort of medieval cosmology. So every time the priest says the words of institution, he doesn't whiz past the planets onto and get down into the altar in Zurich. Uh, he's present in uh, heaven, the semi-local heaven out there, and uh, he'll be there until the second coming. Okay, so Luther, by contrast, has a very different Christology. His Christology tends to follow the trajectory you get in the Eastern Church, particularly the Alexandrian tradition, which is sometimes called um, Logos-Sark's Christology. So what it emphasizes is not only the unity of Christ as a subject, as Cyril did in his um, unfortunate formula of one incarnate nature. What he meant is just one single human divine subject. That's what he meant by it. Um, but also that the two natures communicate back and forth with one another. So Jesus, the man, participates in everything that it means for Jesus to be God. Okay, so he also participates in the possibilities of divinity in the same way that if you stick an iron in the fire, some of the early church fathers say, it'll heat up. It won't turn into, it won't turn into fire, but it'll glow with the fire and it'll burn you like fire, right? So the humanity of Jesus can be, uh, can walk through walls, as we see from the uh, post-resurrection manifestations, right? appear and disappear at will. It's still a physical body. The disciples can just stick their fingers in his arms and his side and all that stuff, like with, like with Doubting Thomas. Mm -hmm. But it's but he's, he's, he's physical, but he's mysteriously physical. And if that's true, um, then um, he can be present in many places at once. So what does that do for the right hand of God? Well, the right hand of God is a metaphor. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. so one person says the Eucharist is a metaphor, the right hand of God is literal. And the other person says the right hand of God is a metaphor and the Eucharist is literal, right? So right. the right hand of God, says Luther, in the Old Testament means God's power and glory. God is not a physical body. He doesn't sit on a throne in heaven. He's omnipresent his, and his power and glory is everywhere. So Jesus, the risen Jesus 
whose body and uh, whose whose physical body participates in the glory um, of the second person of the Trinity has the possibility, and in fact is, in some mysterious sense that we can't really even explain, present in all places and all times. Now, if he's present in all places and all times, then it should be pretty easy for him to communicate himself to us on Sunday morning through the elements of the Eucharist, right? Um, in, a, in a way that's physical, but again, mysteriously physical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so that's how he interprets then the right hand of God. So it seems like, you know, if I wanted to, maybe this is oversimplifying, but kind of characterize the two men and their thoughts, Luther is, there's more mystery to Luther, there's more logic to Zwingli, Zwingli has to logically work through. Well, I guess it's not always the case because I mean, the case. I mean, Luther is a a incredible scholastic logician. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Cross has written quite a bit about this. Who is a uh, scholar? He teaches at Notre Dame. He's a scholar of um, the um, of medieval uh, Trinitarian and Christological uh, theology, and uh, he's written now a book on um, Reformation Christology, which he spends quite a bit of time at Luther, mm-hmm. and he says Luther just knocks it out of the park in yeah. terms of logical uh, and uh, uh, you know precision. He is a real scholastic theologian. Zwingli is more of a, um, a humanist, and he's not up to the task in the same way that if, um, maybe we can talk about it sometime in the future. The Erasmus is a humanist and tries to oppose Luther, but doesn't have the scholastic precision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what you could say, though, is that they have very different concepts of faith and reason beyond their very different Christologies. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, Zwingli is influenced by Thomism and Scotism. And so for him, the rational order uh, and the revelational order have to mirror one another, essentially. Mm-hmm. Luther, by contrast, is influenced by Occamism, which again, tended to relativize reason because God is a infinite person who can essentially do what he wants. And so what he wants to do isn't subject to human reason. The, the rash, there is a rational order, but the rational order is something that you pursue in this world, not in the next world where God is essentially unlimited. Reason works on the basis of being able to have limited variables. And But if you have a subject like God who isn't limited, well, I mean, there's a, maybe a certain logic to what God decides to do, but I mean, you can't come to God with pre-established ideas about what's rational and what isn't in the same way that you can with Thomism. So what, what you have to do is look at what God has promised to do. And in this case, Luther says, well, what do the words of institution say? Well, he's promised to make Jesus's body and blood present. Can God deliver on it? Yep. God can do anything. Uh, just like Occam said he could. So we just got to take him at his word and, you know, we can't explain how exactly it works out, how, Maybe a body could be present at many places at once, because typically we don't experience it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do know that Jesus has said that they will be the case. And we also know that the risen Jesus displayed um, a kind of mysterious physicality that would make something like that possible. Right. So we have to rely on them and not on a pre-established definition of what it means to be a physical body. Right. So. Right. Yeah, I guess Jesus, the resurrected Jesus does do some things that, uh, my body mm-hmm. can't do <laughs> so right. um so uh when zwingli of course had to account for that and then explain all that stuff away so sure so when it comes to zwingli though um because i um i, I know a lot of i'll just be frank i know a lot of anti-zwinglius and i guess i i mean <laughs> if i were to side with he's not real popular these days yeah if i were to side with either one it'd be luther i mean I, not only do i like music and 
investments. And, and I think that's kind of a growing trend among people coming back to churches. They would maybe go with Luther over Zwingli. But, mm-hmm. so, but when it comes to Zwingli, um, his belief in the Eucharist, um, a lot of people, the caricature, I could maybe, I, I think could, could, there's maybe a caricature at work because it's almost like Zwingli is said to just believe it is a symbol, like it's merely a symbol, as if, 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 as if it's the idea of it being a symbol. Like, it, isn't there more to it, though, not in terms of presence, but as far as what the power of that symbol does for Zwingli's theology? Is it, um, I've always heard that um, the best representations I've heard of Zwingli's theology is that um, the effect it kind of has on the communicant, I guess. Um, right. Well, I mean, there is, he wants to emphasize the communal aspect of it. So it's a, it's a sacrament of unity, mm-hmm. um, not only testifying that we believe in Jesus, but, but by testifying that we believe in Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins, um, it puts us in fellowship then with other people who believe the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now in his later writing, after he, um, after he's had all his conflicts with Luther and really up to his death in 1531, he starts along the lines that Calvin and then Busser were already going of talking about how since it's only by the having the Holy Spirit that we can test have this faith and testify to this faith, and because the Holy Spirit is a glue that holds the Christian community together, there is a kind of um, spiritual presence, at least we might say, of Christ through the Spirit in when we commune with one another and, and, and take the symbol you know, uh, the symbolic Eucharist. So one thing the contemporary scholarship on Zwingli wants to try to argue is that though there may not be no transubstantiation, one author says there is at least a transubstantiation of the gathered community. Sure. Um, But yes, I mean, the the main emphasis is not on, um, the main emphasis is, of course, on communal unity, of course, Mm -hmm. would be his thing. So uh, kind of shifting gears, what happened at the Marburg Colloquy? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the famous meeting of right. and Luther and Zwingli were the two main guys there, I guess, so to speak. But okay, so um, you have people like uh, Philip of Hesse, okay, who uh, at the um, second um, uh, um, uh, meeting that the emperor has with the uh, German princes after at the kind of disaster at firms wants to um, he wants to reimpose the ban um, on um, Lutheranism because he doesn't really need the Lutheran princes anymore um, and to fight the Turk, which is essentially why he eased it up and gave the reformation a little bit of breathing room. Uh, and so everybody, um, protests this. And so not everybody who protests the reimposition of the um, Edict of Worms uh, is Lutheran, right? Um, and so uh, Philip of Hesse wants to get all the Protestants together. So that, that's how the term Protestants about it. It's a, it's, a, um, it's a protest against the reimposition of the Edict of Worms. Okay, this happens in 1527. And Hesse, who might have had some ambitions of himself becoming the emperor, starts gathering together the Protestants in the form of the small cultic league, at least the Lutherans, uh, for the sake of collective security um, in going up. And uh, he wants he wants everybody though to get together. And he sees Zwingli and Luther's conflict as a barrier for the Protestants to have a united front against the Catholic emperor that wants to stamp them out. So he um, 
gets Zwingli uh, and the other Southern reformers, Busser, uh, Echo Lampadius, and some other people. Interestingly enough, I mean, Busser had some had was closer to Luther. Yeah, but they all sort of gather together on that side. <clears throat> And then the Wittenberg people come together too, and they come to a castle owned by um, um, Philip of Hesse called Marburg over a weekend in October. So a kind of fun, you know, maybe pre-Halloween party or something. I thought you could characterize it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and try to hash out their differences and, and they have a debate. Um, so that's kind of, so they all get together and they're going to kind of, um, Debate the Eucharist at this at this gathering, okay. And um, you know it, it 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 doesn't go very well. For at least for the, if you if you're looking for Christian unity, I mean if you're if you're a Lutheran, it went great because Luther really mopped the floor with them. That's at least my reading of it. <laughs> That's your reading. Well, didn't they come to some significant agreements? They came to some right. in, some significant differences, but there were some agreements. Right. Well, they, yes. Okay. So they, you're correct about this. So they uh, came to a 14 point um, agreement. On the 14 point, they agreed to disagree, and oh. they affirmed 13 things that they believed in: Scripture alone. They believe that salvation is by God's predestinating act. They believe in the Trinity. They and and they even fudged it a bit. So they made it sound like they agreed on baptismal regeneration. Zwingli had didn't believe in that at all. They, um, he didn't believe in confession and absolution. For Luther, confession and absolution is, is absolutely central to how he understands justification by faith. Zwingli didn't believe in it because, after all, you'd have to be working through something physical, the word of the priest, right? So, uh, But he fudged it and kind of claimed that he did. The one thing, though, that they, they couldn't get them to agree on was the Eucharist. And they said, okay, we're going to pray for the other side, and we'll uh, maybe the other side will rethink things. Um, and this was a, of course, they never did come back together and kind of the Lutheran and the Reformed tradition kind of went their own directions after this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Um, ex- except for Busser. Um, Busser and Luther eventually came to a uh, agreement called the Wittenberg Concord, which didn't really last either. But it was actually ended up being very influential in Germany of getting people who maybe leaned Reformed. We ended up adopting this thing to end, to eventually, once the dust settled, to end up being Luther. Interestingly enough, mm-hmm. so uh, but Luther was not beyond negotiating. Luther was not maybe a hundred percent in how Luther wanted to construe the uh, real presence, but he was able to agree to enough mm-hmm. that they were willing to commune, actually commune with them and celebrate the Eucharist with them. So never was this the case though with uh, the people in Zurich. Um, uh, but anyways, this uh, Marburg colloquy ended up, um, the, the, these 14 points ended up becoming a major source of the Augsburg Confession. So Melanchthon used this and a number of other documents uh, leading up to his composition of the Augsburg Confession. So some of the wording in that agreement ended up making it into the Augsburg Confession as well. So it actually ended up being quite significant in that regard. Right. And uh, for our, our listeners, of course, we had a whole episode on Martin Bootser. I'll refer to our listeners oh. to that. A plug in for our episode with uh, Dr. N. Scott Amos, uh, who's mm-hmm. uh, well, leading Bootser authority. And so encourage our listeners. If you want to learn about him more, he was friendly with Luther and foundational in the early Anglican prayer book tradition. So. Yes. Does he uh, end up in England? So. Yeah, he did end up in England. Um, and so, uh, so um, basically, uh, we, we spoke to a lot tonight, and I and I think uh, you know what are I don't know how to phrase this. I guess in future developments of 
the Lutheran tradition and the Reformed tradition. Um, how have some of the, ha, have you seen them, has some of the implications from the different uh, Christologies, has that, um, do you, have you seen that um, in other, in other aspects of Lutheran and Reformed traditions as they would, would, would continue to develop? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, very much so. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. I mean, I would say um, in the Reformed tradition, um, one issue that it, one area that I think they're, they're very, very different than the Lutheran tradition is that their understanding of the presence of Christ is mediated through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, certainly we would say that's true too, but we, we would say both the, that Christ, the risen Christ is present with us as true God and true man in the power of the Spirit. I think that's how we would kind of put it. They want to say that um, based on their reading of some things of where Jesus says, I have to leave. Um, so that the paraclete can come or something like that. And so they take that essentially to mean that it's kind of, it's either Jesus or the paraclete. So the paraclete becomes the substitute for Jesus. And so, um, so the reformed ecclesiology tends to be a tad bit more, I would say, and also subsequent Protestant traditions, um, more spiritualistic than the Lutheran. Mm -hmm. For the Lutheran, the, the risen Jesus is present in the word and in the sacraments, okay? So you know where the church is always because objectively, the we have objective sacraments. It, Jesus is present there whether you believe it or not, okay? Um, the direction that the Reformed tradition is tend to go is more sp- sacramental spiritualism. So for, for Calvin, for example, and Bucer, uh, Jesus is present through the spirit for the elect, but not for necessarily for everybody else, right? Um, uh, because uh, you receive kind of a bare symbol if you uh, receive the Eucharist, for example, in Calvin's Eucharistic theology, if you are not one of the elect, right, uh, or at least not converted. Sure, because Calvin uh, hit a middle ground between, or he, he strived to get a middle ground right. between the Lutherans. Now, yeah, Calvin was, again, Calvin was a good enough um, biblical exegete and scholar of the early church to know that real presence was a thing. On the other hand, he also though he didn't fully swallow Zingli's theology, he did buy the argument that if Christ is a really real human being, he could be present more than one place at once. So his middle position becomes that the humanity of Christ is present through the Holy Spirit that is at work at the elect, on the elect, as they receive um, the Eucharist, right? So, um, I mean, exegetically, that's a, I, I find that a very problematic position. I don't see much support for that in either the early church or the New Testament. Um, but anyways, it is a middle position. Um, yeah. And, um, so the so the emphasis then, though, on most forms of Protestantism, without a objective presence of the risen Jesus, is on evidences of the Spirit being present in the gathered community, which means um, that um, the Spirit who is invisible needs to manifest himself in certain activities. So. Um, the emphasis tends to then fall very much high, much more highly than in the Lutheran tradition on um, the gathered assembly displaying either spiritual gifts or a kind of personal holiness. Um, now, from the Lutheran perspective, that's, that sounds an awful lot to us, like sliding back into a kind of legalism. Um, 
uh, the Reformed tradition and then other forms of Protestantism would say, though, that their um, understanding of church then emphasizes in a way that's more salutary the need to, to cultivate authentic spiritual uh, experience as well as personal holiness in ways that, uh, in their view, our, in our view, view of us, I think, we just mechanically go through the sacraments and get the grace dispensed, like, you know, a Pez dispenser or something like that, um, you know. Um, so um, so that makes for very two very, very kind of different um, trajectories, I think, in Protestantism. Mm-hmm. In, um, despite some, I would say, superficial overlap, like a common belief in the Reformation solos or something like that. Right? Yeah. So, uh, speaking of the uh, spiritualist direction of, of one of those trajectories, didn't Luther himself say something about one of the other Protestants? He said he has swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. That's <laughs> Who was that? Uh, well, he said that about the Pope, but he also said it about the spiritualists, like the Zwickau prophets. Okay, yeah, I, uh, I I ran across that again. Did not verify, but I'm sure it's uh, mm-hmm. real. That sounds like a so. Um, all right, so well, uh, I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, thank this you. Is, mm-hmm. This is a good My breakdown because there's I, I've noticed there's a lot of um, there's a lot of kind of misunderstandings between the intra-Protestant. Uh, I mean. Uh, what you know it's either like protestants they think it's a symbol Roman catholics don't um and we didn't even bring up anglicanism but there's there's more across the spectrum of eucharistic belief than just those kind of two uh right sure. two ways and so i think this clarifies a lot of that gives give some of the history behind that and also thanks for touching on the two tra- trajectories i uh i've no- did you check out that uh podcast interview Oh, what was the 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 guy from uh, Leopoldo Sanchez from Concordia who wrote the Spirit Christology? Oh gosh, I guess I didn't have time to look at that. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I can edit that part out. <laughs> oh, no, no, <laughs> no, no, that's fine. But I, I would really recommend for our listeners. Uh, it's it's a uh, script, which is a Bible and theology podcast. There's an interview with Leopoldo Sanchez, who is a another Missouri Synod theologian, and he wrote a book called Spirit Christology. And it really there's 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 uh, it's very true what. Jack said about um, the not do, not separating or not separating Jesus from the Spirit. That all a lot of Lutheran emphasis is about mm-hmm. not not separating that. And I, being someone raised Lutheran myself, that's something that's really stuck with me. That kind of high Christocentrism um, that I'm very grateful for because um, and Leopoldo's work in this concept of Spirit Christology, which kind of mines through. Uh, the the biblical datum, I guess, and also he has mm-hmm. a very he has a very pastoral approach to it too. But how uh, the spirit resting on Jesus, um, um, how that works out theologically and pastorally, and so um, recommend our listeners to check that out too. So, but uh, Dr. Cookie has been a pleasure. Um, love to have you on a Thanks so much. I uh, appreciate again it. in the future, uh, and uh, this has been a great episode. So, thank you. So thank you. And check out jackkilcrease.com for our listeners. Uh, he has lots more stuff from of his work. And so thank you. Thanks. God bless. Yes. Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doff Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel, we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. 
Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.